my sponsor made a comment to me one time. I told you my father was killed when, when I was a young man, or when I was a baby, actually. And for a long time, I was looking for a father figure, and I was looking for somebody to show up and rescue me or take care of me. And, and I was talking to Tim about this, and I said, you know, I, I said, I, I just, I've always just wanted a guy to, to show up and, and be that father figure. He goes, Josh, when are you going to stop looking for that guy and start being that guy? That was Josh Horton, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today we have Joshua Horton joining us on the show, and what an amazing and inspirational story of addiction and recovery Josh has. Uh, Josh currently is a second-year-old Miss Law student who finished magna cum laude from the Old Miss Honors College. He's on his way to becoming an attorney. He's passionate about recovery. He's passionate about doing service work but he has one hell of a checkered past. When Josh would drink, which was every day, he never knew where he would end up, and he would have no recollection of the night before when he did wake up. He would take fistfuls of Xanax with alcohol, sometimes dozens of pills in a day, and should have died so many times he literally can't remember them all. In 2008, Horton was picked up in Alpharetta, Georgia, where he repeatedly fired a 9mm handgun wildly into his townhouse while drunk. When police arrived, he had moved outside and thrown the gun in the bushes. He then proceeded to give the SWAT team the bird and then reach for a beer in his truck, which law enforcement thought at the time that he was reaching for a weapon. It's a miracle that they did not shoot him dead. And today, Josh is an amazing human being doing an amazing amount of service and an absolutely upstanding, responsible member of society. So let's dive into Josh's story. But first, a few iTunes reviews. And this first one's from Canada, CMJDM, Saving My Life. These stories are saving my life. I don't feel so alone anymore. I wish I found this podcast years ago. Man, I hear you. I wish there was podcasts like this when I was getting sober. And maybe there was and I just wasn't looking. But I know the feeling of needing recovery, a meeting not being available, and having something that I could lean on like the podcast, uh, to listen to. So thanks for the review and thanks for listening. And uh, we'll keep pumping out the hits, right? <laughs> All right. So this next one is from Anxiety Kills and love this podcast. I came here because of the Dopey episode and I've already listened to over 20 of your podcasts and recently started from the beginning. Great podcast, very insightful and love the stories. Man, I got a lot of love for the Dopey fans. They keep coming in. So thank you, Anxiety Kills. Keep coming back. And on that same note, just so you guys know, we've already recorded the Dopey interview with Chris and Dave last week. So their interview will be coming up in about a month or so. So look out for the infamous Dopey episode with Chris and Dave on the Share Podcast. Okay, so moving on, the next one is from DDoobs912. I think I got that right. Captivating, inspiring, and helpful. As an avid podcast listener in general, I'm in the car about three hours per day. Man, I feel your pain, brother. That used to be me for five years. 
I'm so glad to find the Share Podcast. Omar is really a positive guy who gives his guests a platform to tell their story in addiction through recovery. Share gives the listeners the benefit of listening to a familiar, consistent, friendly, and authentic host while also offering a variety of guests from all different walks of life and addictions. As someone who has struggled between addiction and recovery for most of my life at the age of 30, I find that each episode has a major takeaway as it influences me to continue to make positive choices in my life. Wow, that's a great review. Thank you so much. And, and that's what the Share Podcast is all about. It's about real people with real addictions, doing the work, connecting with a higher power, and finding recovery. I mean, that's it. You know, you get a life and it's the therapeutic value of one addict helping another. You hear these stories, you totally relate to it, and it's no different than you know when, when some of us went to our first meeting. I remember one of my first meetings, because my very first meeting, I hated it, but you know, a few years later, when I hit rock, rock bottom, and I went to my first meeting, everything made sense. Everything made sense, and I knew here that I could recover. So again, thanks for the great reviews, guys. And if you haven't rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, then please do so so I can read them on the air. I'm making a concerted effort every week to read these. I'm even going backwards now, like the ones that I've missed over the years. I'm gonna try and get to all I'm gonna try to get to everybody. That's why I'm doing like three or four of these sometimes at a time. But new ones definitely are gonna get read right off the bat so I don't lose them along the way. So again, Go to iTunes, share podcast, five-star rating, and review. It's one of the best ways to help support the show. And believe it or not, it does make a huge difference. We get new listeners every day. And of course, the absolute best way to support the show is through a PayPal donation. So if you do have the wherewithal to donate to the share podcast, then go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com forward slash donate, or just go to the Share Podcast website, if you've already got that saved. Top right corner says donate, and also there are donate buttons throughout the page. And of course, I absolutely want to thank all of the listeners that continue to send in their donations every month. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts here at the Share Podcast, and know that you guys are making a difference. So again, if you would like to donate to the Share Podcast and you have the wherewithal to do so, $5, $10, $20, $50, $100, you can do that monthly or you can do a one-time donation. Give up one caramel macchiato and a blueberry muffin at Starbucks and donate to the Share Podcast. Every donation matters and helps. And if you're going to be shopping on Amazon anyway, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast.com forward slash Amazon, and that'll take you right to an Amazon page that has our code embedded in the browser. You can easily find the banners to our Amazon link right on the homepage. And while you're on the homepage, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter. Just scroll down on the webpage and the subscribe box will pop right up. And as new things start to evolve with the Share Podcast, we'll be announcing those in our free newsletters. And once again, the private Facebook group. If you have friends in recovery that you would like to share 
the group with, if you know someone who is shy about going to meetings, someone who needs help but doesn't want to go to meetings, introduce them to the Share Podcast Private Accountability Group. If you haven't checked it out yet, jump in there. I mean, seriously, if you need support, it's there. If you want to give support, then that's absolutely welcome in there. You will not believe the amount of support that goes on in that group. People ask for help, and the members just reach out and love on them, and it's just amazing. It's something that I have absolutely no control over. It has a life of its own. It's HP, baby. It's higher powered now. I'm going to start using that term, guys. So the Facebook private group, there's no question about it. It's higher powered. It's all positive energy. There's no negativity there. It's unbelievable. It's what tells me that I'm not running the show in there. Higher powered, baby. And I never would have imagined that when I started the podcast, it would get to where it is today. And now it's the only thing that I want to do. So I'm trying my best to put as much into the podcast as possible and come up with some, some ideas. Some members have requested some HP Baby t-shirts. So now I'm talking to my buddy Mike Lindsay over at Airwear, and him and I are messing around with some ideas and trying to come up with, with some t-shirt ideas. Then another idea I had was some different types of episodes where we stick exclusively to a specific topic about recovery. Quick little episodes where we give you golden nuggets that you can take away with quickly. There's always questions, right? There's questions in the Facebook group and not everyone gets a chance to see them because as the news feed goes down, new topics come up and sometimes people miss them because they come in later on in the game and they may not see it. So I thought it'd be a good idea to start posting those. So of course, that takes more time. It takes more energy. It takes more effort. And I certainly want to do that, but I'm definitely going to need more support to keep building on this momentum. I love you all and HP, baby. All right. So quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you. Excellent. How are you feeling today? I'm, I'm hanging in there, man. I'm better than I deserve, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long day, but I'm, I'm always happy to, happy to talk recovery. All right, good. All right, because that's, that's what we're going to do. All right, so folks, today we have Josh Horton joining us on the Share Podcast. And Josh's story was featured in the Oxford Eagle online newspaper titled, Meet Joshua Horton, Ole Miss Law Student Overcomes Odds, Fights to Make Difference. Josh is a second-year Ole Miss law student who finished magna cum laude from the Ole Miss Honors College. But prior to his achievement, Josh was a train wreck, wreaking havoc everywhere he went. That sound about right, Josh? Yeah, I don't know. It might be more of a plane crash than a train wreck, but yeah, it was it was it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, a little bit's happened since then. Uh, that was that was a few months ago. We've had a lot of progress since then. I just matter of fact, I'm from Atlanta originally, which I'll get into in my story. But we had a, a large center feature on the front page of the Atlanta Journal Constitution talking about no matter what and what that means in my recovery and the story of, of my journey that, that's brought me to, to law school. And 
before I, I do anything else, I got one request from you, from you, O, and that's the next time we do one of these interviews, I, I, I want to be down in Costa Rica with you. <laughs> and I, I've got a, I've got a really cool story about that, and it's funny that we're actually broadcasting from Costa Rica because from the time I was about 13 years old, and I really think maybe even before that, when Jurassic Park came out, and then the, uh, you know, Jurassic Park was filmed in, in Costa Rica, and or parts of it was, and I, I can remember seeing that, and I was like, I, that's where I'm going to retire, and I just had envisioned this, this, you know, surf shop on the beach that I, I can just have a coffee shop and, you know, sit there right by the Pacific Ocean, and, and, and what's funny about that is I spent about 13 years of my life on probation in, in the state of Georgia, and I could never leave the county, much less the state, and after I got sober, I got the opportunity to come down to Costa Rica, and it was really a blessing. And, and the crazy spiritual side of all this is my sponsor and I had been talking about what was I going to do for a recovery meeting while I was down there, and he sent me this picture on Google, uh-huh. and it was a wrought iron gate with this you know, logo, and this was three months prior to me even going down there. And so I get down there and I go to Mount Arenal and then we go to Capos and we go down to Manuel Antonio and I end up in this little town. I always thought I wanted to live at Haco Beach when I retire in Haco Beach. And, <laughs> you know, I, I've decided that I want to be at Capos now because I just I fell in love with that town. But what's funny is I walk up on this, this meeting and out of all the meetings in Costa Rica and all the places, it was the exact meeting he had sent me on my phone that he had Googled from Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was all, like, like I looked at the, at the gate and the emblem on the gate, and it was the same thing I had in my phone. I almost had to do a double take, but it, but it gets even better than that. So it, it was my dream to go to Costa Rica. It was my dream to, to come down there. And we, I, get, I go to this meeting, and I end up going to another meeting on Christmas Day, uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Manuel Antonio, the ladies' restaurant that was sitting there on the on the bluff overlooking the rocks and the, and the water. And I just got to spend this fellowship time with all these other people that I never would have been able to do. All my years drinking and using, I could never get out of the state of Georgia, but it wasn't until I got sober that some of my dreams started to come true. And one of those dreams was being in Costa Rica. And the fact that I got to do that on Christmas Day with these other alcoholics and addicts overlooking the Pacific Ocean, eating a beautiful meal was, was probably one of the most spiritual experiences in my life. And, uh, you know, I just, I wanted to talk about a little bit about that before we got started, because I know you're in Costa Rica and it just, it just, it brought back some of those, some of those emotions. Well, it's brought back, you know, as you're, as you're going through it over in Manuel Antonio, it's one of my favorite meetings. It's in, um, a, a, a hotel restaurant called Mono Azul. And that might be it. Yeah, that's it. That's the that's the main. It's English speaking, right? Yeah, and it's right by the little airplane that's cut in half. Uh huh. Uh huh. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We have that's every it. year the first weekend of May. It's coming right up in in the next two weeks. Is the uh, probably? I think this is the seventeenth year uh, for the AA convention in Manuel Antonio. They have it every year, and I'm at that exact hotel. I usually go. 
Uh, I won't be going this year, but uh, I typically go. Um, so yeah, as you were going through memory lane, it's a lot of the the stomping grounds and, and recovery stomping grounds that I've had an opportunity to to go see, and I made some amazing friends there. Just like you, you know, you show up, and you know, no matter where you go in the world. You know, they're friends just almost instantly. You know, you go in and you feel right at home and you speak the same language and you feel safe. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And in the meeting I went to in that little back alley, it wasn't even an English-speaking meeting, the first one I went to, but I still felt right at home. I mean, you don't even have to really be speaking the same language. And you get in a room full of other people and we're just, you know, we speak the language of the heart together. And that's that's kind of cool. That's exactly what it is. It is. You're speaking the language of the heart, and you know uh, they love having newcomers. You know we love having newcomers. It it, it it's so it changes the dynamic of of the fellowship. It changes the dynamic of 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 your own recovery. And the thing is, you can go anywhere in the world now, and and be safe and be at home. You know, as long as you get yourself to a meeting, it's a beautiful thing. That's right. All right, so let's dive into this. That's great, man. Thank you for for starting us off with that. That's a great kickoff story. Um, so, what is your daily routine look like uh, today? Uh, your normal daily routine, including recovery. Wow. I mean, I, I still I still work with a lot of young men. I'm at Ole Miss Law right now, and that consumes a lot of my time. We have been. Um, I've been taking some different classes this semester, doing some civil rights stuff. We were on death row at Parchment, one of the, the largest working prison farms in, in the country, um, next to Angola in Louisiana, and doing some work there, really trying to bring recovery into this civil rights movement because, you know, that's kind of the, the only people that aren't getting addressed right now. You've got all these other different social movements, and it feels like we're kind of getting left behind in terms of, you know, and, and, you know, now we've got the opiate epidemic is, is so rampant right now, especially in the United States. We've, it's now become the number one killer of young people. It's per- surpassed gunshots and car accidents combined. Wow. And, and we're really trying to, to do a little bit of that stuff. But I, I mean, I, just for today, for example, I mean, I was, I was in legal profession and ethics at eight o'clock this morning. From there, I was in the MacArthur Justice Center, which is the clinic I'm working in. They have an office here. At Ole Miss, they're based out of Chicago, uh, and doing some work with some stuff up there. Then I had uh, that clinic go on today. We were doing depositions. I had a, a couple of people contact me that I work with in recovery. Last night I was at my home group, and you know we we meet a couple times a week. It's not like Atlanta where I'm from. Oxford, Mississippi is a little bit different. You know, in Atlanta, you, you've got 3,300 meetings a week, Ooh. and and in Mississippi, you, you might be able to find one a day, and that's in a that's in a city. If you're out in some of the rural parts, you may have to drive thirty or forty miles to do one meeting a week. So there's a there's a big difference here, and, and we're trying to to change that a little bit. And so it's you know, but it, it's just busy, and, and everything's good. And we've got a, we've started a nonprofit here called Southern Recovery Advocacy. I've been doing a lot of work with that and doing lots of uh, media work. Like I said, that, that um, article just came out in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution featuring me and what we're doing from a legal aspect. And it's really started to to garner some attention both regionally and nationally, and, you know, with tonight, internationally. So uh, we're excited about that. 
Okay, so you're staying real busy. It looks like there isn't really a regular routine in the sense of you've got so much activity going on and there's and so many programs that you're involved with. It just kind of seems like uh, you got a lot on your plate. It, it does, but you know, I've always I've always managed to make time for recovery because even with all that busy social schedule, I, I, I make time. I spend about an hour in the morning in quiet meditation, prayer. Uh, I get into literature. I, I just ordered a new book on Greek philosophy. I, you know, I switch it up. So I'm I'm constantly seeking spiritually, and, and I've found that that really the secrets in the seeking. As long as I'm actively engaged in spiritual activity, whether that be church or going to a Buddhist monastery or, you know, just these different avenues that that are trying to expand spiritually, I found that it kind of finds me. And that's that's been my experience so far. And and I'm I'm happy with what I'm getting. So I'm not really going to change what I'm doing. And and to really stay centered, I, I try to stay you know, grounded on a daily basis. I'm, I'm trying to stay in contact with, with my higher power, um, which I choose to call God. And then, you know, I, I work with a lot of other people. I try and do as much service work as I can. I, I hit meetings. You know, I, I try not to forget that, you, you know, I, I got to keep it simple. Right. Because, you know, the things that got me sober are what's going to keep me sober. Absolutely. And I, I just try and do that as, as busy as I may get. I always make time for that. And it seems like that when I do that and when I put those things first, my life unfolds the way it's supposed to. I was working with a, a doctor in charge of one of these medical programs here in Mississippi. And he, he described it like this. He was talking about recovery and he, he likened it to a clothes rack. And what he said was, you know, if you've got a, a coat rack and you've got all these different pieces of clothing, you've got a coat here and a pair of jeans and all these things are on hangers. You know, my recovery is that rod. My recovery is what these hangers hang on them. The, the hangers are my, my job, my relationships, my financial security, my, you know, all these things, my employment, all these things hang on that recovery. And if I take that recovery out, the rest of it's just going to kind of fall down. A hundred percent. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And you, that was my next question. My next question was going to be, how do you maintain your spiritual condition that conscious contact with a higher power? And you just answered that. I feel it's such I have that question because I feel it's so important for all of us. I, I personally believe that unless you have a strong spiritual connection with a higher power, a God of your understanding, it makes it extremely difficult to really connect with the fellowship, really connect with recovery. I personally believe I can't do this alone. That's why we need each other. But sure. in in connecting with each other, we're automatically connecting with a higher power. We're automatically connecting with God. Um, so yes, uh, it's it's very important for me, and and um, I think it's a very strong message that you have for those that are listening. That uh, having that conscious contact with a higher power is paramount for your recovery. Absolutely, it's just like working out. If I if I want to get stronger and I want to get you know or running, whatever it may be, you, you can compare it to physical activity. I, I better be working out those muscles, and spirituality is the same way. I've got to be engaged. And what I'm doing, and I've got to be working that that spiritual muscle. And when I do that, I get stronger spiritually. It's you know when I don't, I I, I feel that too. Uh, and, and you mentioned something that reminds me of a poem I heard one time, and it says, you know, I, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. And then it says, I sought my brother, and I found all three. 
and, and that that kind of goes back to that idea of I find I find God when I'm out there working with other alcoholics and when I'm when I'm doing service and and the beautiful thing about it is I can I can find that even when I'm not helping alcoholics I can be out there helping other people and 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 I got that from recovery I got those tools that connect me to other people from you guys you know it's and I hear people say all the time they say you know this is a spiritual program not nah, bullshit it's a spiritual life the program's what gets us plugged into it. You know, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. Uh, so, Josh, how much clean time do you have, and when's your anniversary date? Uh, I got sober January twenty seventh of two thousand thirteen. So I've got a little over four years. Beautiful. I love it. Good for you. Congrats. Thank you. So, how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, I, the first time I got drunk. I was about 13 years old, and I was with a friend. His father had bought us a six-pack of beer, and I knew I was alcoholic from the get-go. And the reason I know that is because I almost felt like a freeze-dried alcoholic. I was just waiting for the alcohol to add. I'd always felt different. I'd always felt, you know, like I didn't get the instruction manual to life. Um, like I was on the outside looking in. I was. You know, I was wanting my insides to feel like your outsides looked, and that just never happened for me. But so when I was about 13, my stepdad's got this six-pack of beer, or my my buddy's dad got the six-pack of beer, and I drank my three, and and he drank his three, and he went to bed. And I went to the liquor cabinet and got a bottle of Jack Daniels and ended up waking up in my own vomit. (laughs) So, you know, that was my first experience with alcohol, and— you know, most normal people would do that and say, good God, I don't want any more of that, you know, and, and I did it and I was like, when can I do that again? <laughs> but because it, it, it was, it, and it wasn't even that it was so great, but it scratched that itch. It, it fixed that, that God sized hole that I've got inside of me that I can't fill w- with anything. And, and booze seemed to temporarily solve that problem or scratch that itch. Um, uh, until it didn't anymore, and it, it started to create problems. Of course, of course. All right, Josh. Looks like you're all warm. Looks like you're all warmed up, buddy. So it's time for me to sh- turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Josh, take it away. All right, thanks. So, um, like I said, I, I drank the first time at 13 years old. I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit further than that, though. I, I was about eight weeks old. I was born in Atlanta. My family had moved us down to Florida. My grandparents owned a, a surf shop in Panama City Beach and in Destin called the Surf Hut. That's, I think that's kind of one of the reasons I want to retire in Costa Rica and have a, a surf hut in Costa Rica. But the, um, you know, we had moved down, and my grandfather and my father were out on a boat. My father was on the front of the boat looking for sandbars, and they hit one, and it flipped my father over the front of the boat. My grandpa ran over him, and the propeller hit my father in the, in the head, killing him instantly. Oh, my and, God. And, you know, there was, there was alcohol involved in that. I mean, there was no DUI or anything, but they were actively drinking. That was 1983. So it was a a long time ago, but we moved back to Atlanta and moved in with my mother's parents and stayed there for a while. And 
they're all from New Orleans. And I don't know if you know anything about New Orleans, but it's a very uh, wet culture. I mean, there's a there's a lot of drinking that goes on in New Orleans. And they mm-hmm. were they were Catholic and it was just kind of part of what we did growing up. And I, I was just kind of immersed in this drinking culture. And we didn't have, you know, birthdays, weddings, funerals. Everything was, you know, there was just booze there. And right. that's still it still goes on, you know, and not everybody in my family is alcoholic. There is a lot of alcoholism, but I think for me, I was, I I was genetically predisposed and I've heard it said that, you know, biology loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger on addiction. And (laughs) I think that was definitely true in my case. Um, I, I had found that, that magic elixir when I was, when I was about 13 years old and I just thought it was what everybody did and it didn't take, you know, it wasn't until I really got sober and in recovery that I realized that that's, that's not a normal way to live. And most people actually don't, don't do that. Um, so, you know, we go on from there. I, I was, like I said, I was 13. I took my first drink and I'm going to do my best not to, not to stay drunk very long because I've had a lot of good things happen as a result of getting sober, and I'd like—I think we all know how to get drunk. But I'll—I'll I'll qualify myself with, with some of the the war stories, and, and I've got—I've got quite a few of those. And please really share. Yeah, it's—it's a, it's a miracle that I'm even here. I got my first DUI when I was 16 years old. I was charged as an adult in Panama City, uh, Florida, and I, I made some disparaging remarks to the officer and found myself hogtied on the pavement. Mm. Uh, and that was my first experience with law enforcement. From there, it, it got worse. I, I ended up quitting school shortly thereafter, and I was dating a girl whose mother was a Playboy photographer in Atlanta and moved in with them, and they were doing you know illicit activities, and there was photography going on. and I, I just... I thought I had found heaven. You know, I'm 16 yeah. years old, and I'm, I'm waving the guys on the school bus with, you know, photography going on in the house with Playboy, and I'm smoking weed and drinking beer. And I'm thinking, this is, I have found my niche. This is this is what I need to do for the rest of my life. I could just break Lebowski or Big Lebowski my way through this. And, <laughs> it, and, and it wasn't, you know, but I, like I said, I, I started out drinking alcoholically, so I had a lot of problems. And I, and I continued... To, to fall into these cycles and these, you know, I, I had a lot of problems with law enforcement. I, I'm the kind of drunk that society just doesn't tolerate drinking. And it was made abundantly clear. I've, I've, you know, I've had four DUIs in total. I had my house raided by the drug task force. Uh, you know, all these, these different scenarios. I, I wound up... Uh, drunk and in Las Vegas at 21 years old and I had flown out there with a girl that I had known for three weeks. I ended up getting married by Elvis at <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning. This is awesome. <laughs> to a woman that's 16 years my senior. Oh, shit. <laughs> it, it gets better, though. It gets better. And so they don't even do marriages past 3 a.m. or past 12 12 o'clock midnight anymore in Vegas, I think for people like me. And, I, and I've actually thought about suing the hangover 
the, the movie for copyright infringement. I, I like it because there, there's definitely some some similarities there that you can't really make up. But so so I end up. Elvis marries us. We're you know three o'clock in the morning. Limo driver's the witness. I end up tattooing the wrong initials on my back. Oh. And I, I come back to, to I didn't, she, the, the sad part is she watched him do it and didn't realize it was, wasn't her initials. Oh. So, so, so we come back to Atlanta and it takes somebody pointing me out, pointing out to me that those are not, in fact, the, the woman I had married's initials. And so it, they've since been covered up. But that, that's the kind of, you know, tragically funny things I would do drinking. And it, it just, it always got worse. Um. I burned through my, my father died and he had left, you know, the insurance, he didn't have life insurance, but we had an annuity. And then I got these installments for the college plan at 18, 19, 20, and 21. And I burned through all of it. It was about $60,000 in total. Oh. And it was designed to give me an education. And all it did was pay attorneys and kept me out of prison mm. and fueled, fueled alcoholism and addiction. Um, you know, I, I bounced, you know, from couch to couch. And I was, I was later informed by my sponsor that just because somebody lets me sleep on their couch does not mean that I'm not homeless. I, you know, I, I was I was very much, in fact, homeless for, for years. But I thought because people took pity on me and let me sleep on their couch that I somehow was not that bad. Right. In fact, I was. Um, you know, and, and things just continued to get worse. I... I ended up, you know, I, I never could keep a job for very long. I could, I was always good and talented. And I could always, you know, I could always do things for a little while, but I never could keep it up because the drinking wouldn't allow me to do it. I just can't, I couldn't function successfully in society actively using. And so it, it kept me from ever making any kind of progress. And, you know, I would stay in on probation in, in three different counties and, you know, the, this, you're trying to juggle all that with different probation officers and drug tests and then rehab. You know, I've been to nine different treatment centers and, and I started out in places that were pretty nice. You know, I've, I've had $40,000 big books issued from really fancy treatment centers and I've had state issued ones. Um, but it, the, all of them kept telling me to go to the same thing. You need to go to these meetings. With right. Right. You know, and it, for a guy like me, I just had a hard time paying attention. You know, I, I didn't, I couldn't surrender. The fact that, you know, they say the great obsession of every alcoholic is that one day he's going to be able to control and enjoy his drinking. You know, I, I pursued that to the gates of insanity and almost to death. Uh, one of the with later incidents, I, I'd gotten really drunk outside of my home and gotten in an argument. And I pulled a weapon and I ended up firing the weapon and the SWAT team came out and... You know, I'm so drunk, I'm in a blackout drunk at this point, I had thrown the gun in the bushes, and this is part of what that Atlanta story that came out in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was all about, was, you know, this, you know, they, they draw down on me, and they tell me, put your hands up, and I throw on the bird, and I go back into my truck. Oh. They, think, they think I'm reaching for a weapon, I'm reaching for a beer. And, oh. But the... the they said they came so close to lighten me up that, and they would have been justified doing yep. it. I mean, no, nobody would have ever black batted an eye if they filled me full of lead. 
So it, it gets even crazier, though. So, so I get arrested for, you know, 40-some-odd felonies, and they're taking me down to Fulton County Jail. In Good County Lord. And, and I wake up, and, you know, and I don't know what's happened. I, I'm, they're telling me all these things, and, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I can't believe I've done this. And, you know, I had 13 counts of reckless conduct, 13 counts of terrorist act, 13 counts of discharge of firearm by a public highway, uh, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, which I'm not a convicted felon, but for whatever reason, it was showing up that I was at the right. time. And so, so I go to first appearance, and I'm sitting in first appearance, and I've been about a week, and I've been in solitary confinement. I got all these charges, and there's no bond, and there's this young African American judge, and, and she looks at me. And I'm, I'm just thinking, here we go. You know, I didn't know what was coming. I, I, at this point, I thought my life was over. I'm, I'm belly chained. I'm in orange. The, the bailiff's standing there looking at me. And, uh, you know, I'm staring at a woman who has probably busted through every glass ceiling, being a black female in the legal profession in the Deep South. And, and here she's got this white kid who's a drunk, firing a weapon. And she looks at me and she goes, I'm going to do you a favor today, son. I see something in you. And she threw out all the felons. And that bailiff turned around and he looked at me and he said, you're the luckiest son of a bitch I've ever seen in my life. No I had, doubt. I, I had no representation. I had no money. I'm, I'm there. And, and I really don't even understand what's just happened. You know, she's really just saved my life. And I wish I could tell you that was my last drunk. But the, the insanity of this disease is, you know, fear will not keep me sober. Fe the, the fear of consequences and, and pain just, it works for a little while. But eventually, I have to go back to scratching that itch. Yep. And so I get out of there and I do six months in a halfway house. I had to go from there to another jail because I was on probation in another county. But I ended up getting released out of that jail a couple of weeks later and going and living in a halfway house for about six months. And, you know, I'm, I'm, they had strapped what's called a scram bracelet on my ankle. And what that does is that tests your sweat like once every 30 minutes. And at the end of the night, it downloads to a modem. And the modem fires off to probation. And it can tell whether or not you've been drinking that day. Holy I, cow, really? Yeah, yeah. The, they got all kinds of toys for us. Man, out. that's the first. <laughs> yeah, I used to call it my Rolex because it cost me about $10 a day. And, <laughs> you know, the, there were guys, I'll tell you the insanity of alcoholism. There were guys that were sticking slabs of bologna in between their skin and this monitor and not having a test. I mean, that, that's the kind of insanity we're dealing with with alcoholics. But so. So I keep that on. What's funny about this is I get these these periods of abstinence and I get these periods of you know dryness, but it always feels like I'm doing time. It always feels like I'm, I'm you know I'm just waiting until you know that thing comes off so that I can you know I can go do what I got to do again. I, I let the heat kind of get off of me so I can go back and, and try and successfully drink again. And what I what I found is it just gets worse, never better. Um, you know so. We go on from there, and I, I burned my life to the ground. I'm about 27 years old. I'm back at my grandmother's house in 2011, 
and it's right around Halloween. And I wake up one morning, and I'm like, I, I think I want to go back to school. And she's like, what, what the hell are you talking about? I said, I don't know. I said, I, I've ruined my life. I said, you know, I, I want to go back to school. I want to do something different. And so we talk about it. And she's from Mississippi. She's from a small town called Fulton, Mississippi, about 3,000 people. And so we, she's like, okay, fine. She, you know, she, she still got this house that was owned by her parents. It's a very small house that's been empty for about 15 years. But there's a community college about a block and a half away. And she said, okay. She said, all right, I'll take you over. I think she was just tired of dealing with me at this point. She's like, whatever, I'll just get you. Maybe we just need to get you out of the state. <laughs> and so I, I had a DUI pending at the time. and um, Went over and I got that straightened out. I had to come back from court. But I, that morning I wrote something on the mirror of my grandmother's house. And I wrote, no mount on her mirror upstairs. What'd you write? And I meant it, no matter what. Okay. And, and lipstick on the mirror upstairs in the bathroom. And, and um, so I, I get my stuff packed and I go over there and everything just starts to kind of fall in place. And we're doing uh, we're doing the paperwork. I'm, I had taken my GED when I was about 20 years old, drunk in Georgia, and I passed it. You know, I went there with a buddy of mine who's no longer with us. He, he died in an overdose a few years ago, but, the, you know, the... Um, I had my GED, so I go over there and I'm rolling for classes, and I have to come back and I go to Cobb County Court and I've got this DUI charge. Yeah, I end up getting sentenced to some time in jail, and the judge looks at me and goes, "You got anything to say? Well, what are you What are you going to do with your life?" I said, "Well, son, I'm going to I'm going to go to law school." <laughs> and he gave me this, you know, kind of snide, "Uh huh, okay, I'm sure you are, son." Right. Good luck to you. He goes, I tell you what, he goes, if you ever go to law school, you're more than welcome back in my court. So I go and I, I serve my, my few days in jail and, and I get out and I move to Fulton, Mississippi. And I start doing well and I start really excelling. I, I, I learned that, you know, maybe I can apply when I apply myself, I can actually do this. And then I started taking English literature and I started taking political science and I started taking these classes and you know, I just I started learning. There's a lot of stuff out there that I just don't know, and I was I was hungry for this knowledge. I was hungry, and these people just they were so wonderful, and they took me in. And there's a, a woman director of admissions named Kay Lawler, and she was like a surrogate mother. And then this guy at the fitness center ended up hiring me. I had been a personal trainer for a while in Atlanta, and, and he hires me. And his name is James Harris, and he, you know cool story about him he had lost his son about 10 years prior in a car accident and he he ended up taking on this role and i would i'd be going to classes and i'd be working in the fitness center and teaching the faculty and staff boot camps and he would you know i'd get sick and i don't have health insurance i've been living on food stamps and the first first winter i was there i didn't even have uh, heat i had this little space heater i was using to to get to get warm in the winter. The only thing I brought over there was a garbage bag full of clothes and uh, a television and a computer. And, you know, so he would bring me a subway gift card and say, I know you're, I know you're hungry. Here you go. Um, or he'd bring me cold medicine if I was sick. And it just, just that love and spirit of these people that 
really were, were loving me until I could really learn how to love myself. And I got away from a lot of that environment. And, and mind you, I'm still trying to manage this drinking. And, right. and I'm living in a dry county, which I didn't even know they had anymore. But so they don't sell liquor there, which I think kind of kept me dry enough to where I could, you know, make it. I would have to drive two counties over to get booze. So it was just a pain. I could only do it so often. Right? I didn't have money to get over there. It was hard and all this stuff. So, but I found a way to get drunk and I ended up finding a way back into a jail cell. And that was on January 26th, uh, 2013. And, for the first time in my life, I had something to lose. I had people that loved me. Yeah. And I had, you, you know, I had this future that I could see. I, I'd, you know, I'd make it a 4.0 and I'd made the president's list. And, you know, I, I woke up out of a blackout in this jail cell. And like I told you before, I've woke up with 47 felonies. So I have no idea what my charges are when I wake up, or I say wake up, when I come to in this jail cell. And I'm banging on the glass and I'm screaming at this guy. I'm like, what are my charges? What am I? I'm just, I'm so afraid. I'm like, oh my God, I've done this again. I've destroyed my life again. Uh, what, what have I done? And he goes, it's public drunk. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> and, you know, and I think the, the sound of that steel door and the smell, I can smell it right now as I talk to you. Yeah. And the food and it was, and, and the, the, Coming so close to losing everything again, I said, I've done it again. I've lost it all again. And I, I don't know what about that was so impactful, but that was my surrender. That was my point where I said, I can, I am no longer going to be able to try and do this. I give up. I've got to go do something different. And God's always been in my life. God's always been there. I've just, you know found a way of not acknowledging him or drowning him out with booze or other things, and, you know, but he's always been there. And I, and I heard this guy say one time, he goes, you know, I don't believe in, in miracles anymore. He goes, I believe in coincidences where God chooses to remain anonymous. And I get out of jail. And like I told you in Mississippi, there's, there's not a whole lot of AA meetings in Etiwamba County and, you know, Northeast Mississippi. And, but just so happens, the one meeting they had in the entire county was right behind my house, and it met once a week. And it was literally, I could see the guys out there smoking. <laughs> and, 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 God, and I look back down, I'm thinking, this is a coincidence where God has chosen to remain anonymous. And I go up there, and I, and I meet this guy who's from Wisconsin, and he talks funny, and he lives on a houseboat. He's an old Harley Davidson driver, or, you know, bike rider, and... We uh, we start talking, and he's got a car too. So he, he drives me forty miles each way to to an AA meeting every day in Tupelo, Mississippi, and we start we start talking, and we start you know I I couldn't even I, I was so afraid when I first got sober. I, I don't know really what you know what made me. Surrender. I, I couldn't even go to the bathroom without calling this guy. Oh, I, I couldn't. You know, I was just afraid to make a decision. I had a lot of fear and a lot of terror and a lot of bewilderment. I still, you know, feel those emotions trying to trying to come out of this this fog. And I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm afraid because I'm losing my best friend. Alcohol's been my best friend for a long time. Right. And you know, I, I come to to this place. And he's like, well, you need to you need to come to believe that something bigger than you can restore you to sanity. And I grew up, I like to say I'm a recovering alcoholic and a recovering Southern Baptist. I grew up, I grew up Baptist and it, 
it was a bad exposure of me to religion, and I had a lot of resentment, a lot of prejudice, and a lot of judgment yes. uh, towards religion, and or, you know my brand of religion anyway. And so that's what I associated with when he said, "You got to figure out." I said, "I don't even want to talk about Jesus," you know. And he's like, "I said I don't know if I," I said, "I don't know if I believe, man." And this was to another guy in the program. He goes, "You don't have to believe." He goes, "Why don't you just believe that I believe?" And that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and the, you know, here was a guy, he, he had done two nine-year stints in prison. He'd been shot in the face during an armed robbery with a mm. shotgun. He had a glass eye. And, and he had eight years sober. And he had a job. And he had a driver's license. And he had a family. And I'm like, if this guy can do it, <laughs> maybe I can do it too. Right? And, and that's, yep. kind of, that's kind of the way step two infiltrated my life is, you know, and I, I like to tell this story about a lamplighter in England. Uh, you know, back before there was electricity, they used lamplighters to go around and light the street lights on the, the roads of England. And the guy would go around at dusk and he would light these, you know, these lamps all around the streets. And and it would be getting dark and people would be looking out the windows and you could never see the lamplighter, but you could see where he'd been. And that's kind of what recovery's like to me. I can't see God, but I can walk into a room full of people in recovery and I can see where he's been. Yeah. And and that's when I started to believe. And that's when I started to, to see that maybe these guys were onto something. And so, so I keep going a, a little further, and I, I keep going to these things. I start working some steps. And I start trying to surrender, and I'm praying. I don't know what I'm doing. And, and this lady, this old lady in Tupelo, she, I, I'm yelling about something at a meeting, and I'm dumping my garbage. And she's like, baby, all you got to do is try. And, and I don't think more true words have ever been spoken, because even today, all I got to do is try. All I got to do is wake up and make an effort and, and God shows up. And that's, you know, the book talks about it. He said, we, we do not think God makes too hard a terms with those who honestly seek him. And that has been my experience that if I'm, all I got to do is show up and, and make an effort and life stops happening to me and it starts happening for me. Yeah. So, so I go on a little, a little further and I, I get start trying to figure out, well, what the hell am I going to do about turning my will and my life? I don't even know what that means. Right? And, and I, I hear this guy talk about it. And he, he says, well, why don't you think about it like your, your will in your life is your prejudices and your judgments? And now he's speaking my language because I got a lot of those. You know, I, I, I'm prejudiced. And I, I'm judgmental about just, this, just about everything. I wake up in the morning, and before I'm even out of the bed, I'm judging something. You know, some, some, I've got a prejudice that, that you know, the sun didn't come out right. So I can, I can understand that language a little bit. And he's like, you know, why don't you turn your, your prejudices and your judgments over? And the guy that I was working with had me read this book called Sermon on the Mount by Emmett yeah. Fox. Mm -hmm. And I, I love this book. And it really, it was a new view of, of, uh, of prayer and, and God and just the, these ideas. And I, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard that that's what Alcoholics Anonymous used before they had the big book. Was they, they used to get around and use this book as a workbook type thing before, before they had the big book. But, you know, I was, I'm, 
it's kind of speculation. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Uh, it, it could have been, uh, but you know, Serpent on the Mound's been suggested and been read by, you know, many uh, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And, and so that, that kind of transformed my prayer life, and, and I started to see these things show up in my life, and I start to see these opportunities start to present themselves to me, and just as a, just because I'm willing to do the work. You know, and that's what I tell these guys I work with. I'm like, all you got to do is show up. Just do your mm-hmm. part. Yeah. You know, quit, you know, and, and he, this guy, this old guy that I, I go to meetings with now, he says, you know, quit looking for a tangible God and do the work that leads to him. And, and I really like that, I, you know, because that's what happens. I, I don't find God. God finds me as a result of me getting out of the way. And, and I really believe that's all the that's all the 12 steps are. Uh, you know, each step is a little bit more of ego deflation and it chips away at that, that ego and all that garbage that's blocking me from, from God and from other people. And, you know, every, every step I take just, just takes a little bit me and more me out of the way and, and puts more of God into it. And that's, that's where the magic happens. And I've also heard it said, you know, how do you, how do you know what, you know, God's will is? Well, as well as that you do the rest of the steps. You know? <laughs> and, and <laughs> some guy told me that one time, so I was like, okay, good point. So, so I, I do that. I start working on, you know, step four. I'm doing these, this inventory. And, and that's where I really start to see that, that alcohol is not my problem. Alcohol is a symptom of my problem. And, and what I really suffer from is selfishness and self-centeredness and this idea of, you know, I've, I've got to be in control of, of every aspect of my life, and I, I've got these instincts, and they're just they're, they're out of control. Uh, selfishness, self-centeredness, greed, lust—I mean, pride—all these, you know, there's seven deadly. You, you look at them, and, and I've just got them, but I've got them exponentially greater than most normal human beings got them. Because I think as alcoholics, I just, you know, we just do everything to the to the hill, you know. Um, so I go through this with my. My sponsor, he's teaching me, and I, I'm, he's telling me to write down all the people I'm pissed off at. I'm like, easy, you know, I, I'm, I can do that, no problem. And I, I start talking about other stuff, and and then I got to get over to this fourth column, and I got to start looking at my part, mm-hmm. which is what I've never, I've never done my entire life. I've always, mm-hmm. it's been real easy for me to point the finger at you and see where you come up short. But when I turn that mirror around and I start looking at myself, that's that's when I start to get some growth, and you know, I, I start working on. Um, you know, myself. And I, so I go on from there and I, I do step five and I'm, I've become willing to tell somebody else all these things that I've you know, said that I'm going to take to my grave. And, and it was a vulnerability, but it established a connection with this guy and with God too, because I, when I told this man these things, he shared things with me about himself that, you know, made me feel that I'm not so unique because for such a long time I was, I was so new, unique. I was going to be terminally unique. Yep. Right. I was so different. I was going to. I was going to be different till I was dead. And what what step five kind of taught me is you're just another bozo on the bus. There's nothing you've really done that <laughs> nobody else had done. And and it gave me some humility that I'm just not that damn important. You know, I, I'm I'm not as big as I think I am, and I'm not as I'm not as bad as I think I am either. And so, you know, I keep going and I, and I blow past right past six and seven because it's like two paragraphs in the book. And I'm like, I don't really need these. I'll just. Um, 
okay. Character defects, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. Take them. Well, that's where I spend most of my time today. And I've had to, I've had to really back up because I came to what my sponsor calls my second surrender in sobriety because, you know, he says that, you know, my, my first obsession is that one day I would be able to control and enjoy my drinking like, a, you know, and he says that your, your problem now is that you think that one day you're going to be able to control and enjoy your sobriety. And he's right. And I really had to back up and go back through six and seven. I, I bought a couple books and I work with my guys out of them sometimes now. One of them is Drop the Rock. Yeah. And I went through and did some work with that. And they, the same people just came out with another book called The Ripple Effect. And I really like it. I'm still reading it. And it's it's incorporating steps 10 and 6 and 7. And it talks about, you know, these, these character defects. And that's, that's, where, that's where we live. I mean, this is, this is stuff I get to work on for the rest of my life. Uh, and I get better. And, and I, you know, that's where the growth happens. That's where the magic is now is I get these, you know, because through every, every you know, time I take a step forward, I grow and I, I get a new test and, you know, I'm going to stay stuck until I, I, I'm willing to make an adjustment. And it's almost, I found like I keep getting presented the same test in life until I'm willing to do something different. And then I'm, when I'm willing to take a look at that and do it different, it kind of disappears. It, it's weird how that happens, but anyway, so, so I, I'm still working on six and seven and 10 to today as a matter of fact, but, um, so I'm going on through the steps with, with him, and I come to eight and nine, and I, I've got to write down all these people I'm, I've hurt, and I, I got a lot, and I'm, you know, and I start to do step nine, and you know, it's I, I got to be willing to go do these things, and I thought for a long time that step nine was about, you know, me, and it was about, you know, or about the other people, and about the, you know, getting these people off my back, and what I found is step nine is for me. Step nine is, is taking those rocks off of my back. Yep. And, and it's, it's about freedom and it's about being able to go around and look people in the eye and, and have some, some integrity and some character and all these qualities that I could never find uh, drinking and using. And really, until I got enough humility to say, I don't know all the answers, I, I need some help. And I still need that help today. Um, and I, you know, I talked to my sponsor earlier today. I mean, we we still talk a lot. Um, so th- this is this is an ongoing process, and the steps evolve and they change. And you know, the the booze is no longer the problem. It's it's more about the living today. But you know, the, the step nine is where those those miracles start to happen. And I start to take these actions. And I, I heard it said one time that you're never going to think your way into right acting. You got to act your way into right thinking. Yep. And, and step nine was, was where I started to see some of that stuff come to fruition and my thinking started to change and my life started to change and started to get better. You know, and I'm, like I told you earlier, I'm, I'm constantly seeking spiritually how to grow and how to change. And, uh, and I, and I want to go give this stuff away. And that's, that's that 12 for me. The, uh, and practice these principles in all my affairs. And I come short every day. I find new ways to screw up at life. But the, the beauty of this is, is I don't have to be perfect today. All I got to do is try. And, you know, I'll, I'll finish up by telling you a little bit of where that, you know, we've talked about all the, the darkness and the despair and the madness and 
you know, and I really don't even have enough time to go into all of that. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> uh, right. But the but the, the steps kind of brought me out of that. I, yeah. I, I want to tell you a little bit about where it's brought me. So I finish up there at ICC in, in, uh, in Wawa Community College, and I end up getting a full scholarship to Ole Miss. And I get over to Ole Miss, and the uh, I get into a home group over here, and I end up meeting a guy at the honors. Or he's in my home group, but he works at the, the honors college. There's the Sally McDonald Barksdale Honors College, and it's a top five honors program in the country. And he's like, "Why don't you Why don't you sign up for for the honors college?" I'm like, man, no, nobody ever. I can't make it with those nerds, you know. What I mean, he's like, he's like he, goes, you're, he goes, "You're not a dummy." He's like, you, you're, "You're probably a knucklehead, but you know, you, you, you can you can do it." And so I did, and I applied, and he got me in. And, and I started taking some chances over there, and I started realizing that, you know, we're really stigmatized as alcoholics and addicts. And my experience within the criminal justice system was that I always went in. And I came out worse than I went in. It was like going to crime college. Yep. And and I went to you know I served six months for a public drunk one time, and I came out with thirteen recipes for methamphetamine and a business plan. <laughs> and you know that, and so I take that mindset into this honors college, and I start taking honors law classes at, at Ole Miss Law School, and I start meeting these professors, and and they give me the the option of writing this honors thesis in undergraduate, and I, my topic was. Rehabilitation versus incarceration for nonviolent substance abuse offenders. And these guys, I mean, they, they, this is just something you don't talk about in Mississippi, especially at Ole Miss. And these guys looked at me like I had three heads. And, and you know, things, they were like, this guy, you know, what the hell is wrong with him? You know, he can't write about that. And, and I wrote about it. And people liked it. And I started meeting with professors and started talking to them. You know, people kept loving me until I could learn how to love myself. And the Honors College really did that, too. They gave me the freedom from that expression to, to be able to do that. Um, and I ended up taking a, uh, a LSAT, which is what you take to get into law school. And, and I did well enough to, to get into law school. I actually, actually got a scholarship to Kentucky uh, Law and a couple of other places, Michigan State, Loyola, uh, some of these other institutions, but I, I, I ended up staying at Ole Miss um, because I love the university here and I love the people, and there's there's really a lot of uh, a lot to be said about the state of Mississippi. There's a lot of beauty here. I think that gets overlooked by the rest of the nation. Um, I think that people think bare feet and ignorance when they hear Mississippi a lot of times, and, and that's just not the case. There's a lot of a lot of beautiful soul, you know, music, culture, love. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that doesn't get celebrated as much as it should. So I decided to stay here for law school. And, you know, things have continued to take off. I, you know, I've, I've made pretty good grades in law school. I've been, you know, I was recently, uh, you talked about that article from, from the Oxford Eagle. That went viral and, and I had people contact me from all across the country talking about, you know, recovery and criminal justice reform. And, you know, now that's led into a, uh, I was appointed by the governor of Mississippi to our opiate 
at Heroin's Task Force with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. I'm currently serving on that with with them, uh, working on you know how do we how do we keep people from dying in the state of Mississippi? What are we going to do? What what are we going to you know what are we going to do as a society to to turn a system of cages into a system of care? Right. And so we I've, I've been doing a lot of this stuff, and, and things just keep unfolding. And life keeps happening for me instead of to me. And, uh, you know, the, this uh, I've got an internship in New York City with the, uh, the Bronx Defenders. And it's one of the top criminal defense internships in the country. It's highly coveted. I was looking at the email list the other day, and it was Harvard, Yale, NYU, UCLA, uh, Berkeley, Fordham. Ole Miss, you know, it's because they got me in there. And, it's, and the fact that I'm even invited to sit at the same table, just it just goes to show me that God can step in and do for me what I can't do for myself. Amen. Because, because I'm a high school dropout with, with no resources, and, you know, it's like the lamplighter. Right? People look at me and they're like, we know it's not that idiot doing that. We, we know it's got to be something other than him. And, and what it is is it's a program of recovery and it's a higher power. It's, it's, it's just my ability to get out of the way and let God come into my life and do for me what I've been blocking him from doing my entire life. So, you know, now we've gotten a little bit of attention. I started a, a nonprofit last year called Southern Recovery Advocacy I mentioned a little while ago. And, and that's starting to get some, some recognition. We're starting to... To really get, we just hired an executive director who lost her daughter to a, a heroin overdose in Palm Beach. And, um, she's decided to come in and help us, and she's got a history in, in politics and with state agencies. And you know, we've got town halls and getting the attention of legislators, and people are starting to to pay attention, and they're starting to see maybe there's something to this recovery stuff, and. You know, it's all it's all just about going and trying to help the, the next bozo on the bus and saying, look, and it's the same principles we learn in recovery, right? I, I, I'm going to, I can't keep it unless I go give it away. Right. And I can never out give God. So the more and more I try and give this thing away, the more more full my life gets. And that's the miracle of it all, is that, that I get to go out and I get to pursue my passion. And I don't have to worry about anything else. God takes care of it all for me if I'm just willing to show up and do the work. But, you know, on days, you know, what's what's crazy, I call it spiritual jujitsu because it's just funny how it works out. But when I try and control it myself, it, it seems to kind of dry up. And when, I, when I'm willing to let it go again and turn over my judgments and my prejudices about how I think things need to go, it's, it starts to it starts to fill up again. And and that's been the miracle. And I, I just I get the opportunity to come speak with guys like you that are living in places that you know I got to visit because of recovery, because I was willing to go do the next right thing. And I, I don't know what God's got in store next, but I, I know that if I just show up and do the next right thing and, and try and pay it forward a little bit, then I don't have to worry about it. And this guy in Atlanta, you know, tells me something that. And then I'll shut up with this because I know we're about out of time. Is you know, Josh, you're in the efforts business and God's in the results business. Just mind your business. <laughs> and that's it. And, that, and that's really all I got. I'm just really grateful that you had me on and, and took time to to hear my story because I, I'm 
I've really enjoyed being able to share it with you. Well, it's an amazing story, Josh. Thank you so much for sharing that with us because, you know, there's so many aspects of it that, you know, I can relate to. And over the years, you know, I've heard all the same cliches. They're all true. It's all the same, you know, it's really the same journey because we all have the same tools given to us by the same people that got to give it to them, right? We just give what we get freely, and you know the you know you brought up being terminally unique. There's so many people that that I connect with in the Facebook group, uh, people that connect with me either Facebook private message or by email, and they're always trying to figure out you know a different way to skin the cat, you know a different a different mouse trap. And like you say, I'm just another bozo in a bus. I'm not somebody yeah. that that has a, a, a I don't have a magic formula for this other than what's been taught to me, and and so I don't know any other way. Uh, to f- for someone else to get the miracles that you and I have gotten without doing the work. So a lot of us are so terminally unique, we're so special that, well, this doesn't apply to me. It applies to all of us. It's absolutely free, and if you work it, it will change your life. It will, it, it, it will, it will metamorphosize your life. Um, I have interviewed, uh, man, well over a hundred people. And the thing is that there are these gem stories like yours. Um, I just finished interviewing a guy named Tim Ryan. Uh, he wrote a book from dope to hope. And, um, he's another one just like you, whereas I'm listening to your story. There's no question that God has something so big planned for you because someone who abused drugs the way you did, abused the system the way you did, spent time in jail, you know, almost has dodged, literally dodged bullets, and today is sharing a story about someone who is um, a law student, who is an advocate for recovery, for, you know, fighting the stigma against addiction, all these things, these, these wonderful projects that you're working on, you know, who would have thought... That someone that five years ago, this is the man that you would be today. I don't think anyone would have thought that, you know. So, so it's so important for our listeners, you know, for those of you that are listening out there. You think, man, it's just too tough. Man, I just can't do this. Oh, I'm gone too far. You need to listen to Josh's story, you know, <laughs> and recognize that you can never go too far down, you know. It can, uh, you know, as long as you're breathing and walking, uh, you know, and you're on this earth, you can be of service. And, and God has a plan for all of us, man. What an amazing story you have, brother. Well, man, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that, man. It's amazing. So, um, so listen, what we're going to do now is um, what I like to do is I like to close up, and, we like, and I like to close up for the newcomer. So I'm going to ask you some questions about your early recovery. Um, and I want you to respond with uh, some inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. You ready, Josh? Sure. All right. Excellent. All right. Initially, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? My inability to surrender. Uh, it's like you said. The you know we we think we're we think we're unique and somehow we're going to be different. And you know I, I've never met anybody too stupid to get this program, but I met a lot of people too smart. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that was my biggest problem. I just thought I was I was too smart for, for you people. And it was my own judgments that kept me out. And, and when I could set those judgments and those prejudices aside and quit questioning how and why it works and just see that it works and step into that, that, that was that was the change in my life. That was when I was able to to, to really start getting the fruits of some of this stuff when I quit trying to figure it out and just did the work and let it take care of itself. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. And give us your favorite quote, um, you know, one of your favorite quotes that you have to date. Well, one of my favorite quotes is by a, uh, it's actually by a general. It was, he was a World War II general. His name was General George S. Patton, Jr. And he had this saying, and he said, the test of success is not what you do when you're on top. Success is how high you bounce when you hit the bottom. And I've carried that around with me. And, and also that little phrase, no matter what, that, that I, you know, I, I told you about in the beginning, it was written on my grandmother's wall, or my, her mirror at her house. You know, I now have it tattooed on my ribs, on my heart. You know, it's on my commemorative brick on the sidewalk at Ole Miss. It says Joshua Shane Wood, no matter what. <laughs> and, and now it's on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It says no matter what. And that's been that's been the, one of my favorite quotes just personally. And then the, the one from General George S. Patton as well is, you know, it's, it's how high you hit when you have it. It's easy, it's easy to be. It's easy to be uh, OK when everything's all right and you're sitting on top. But how high are you going to bounce when, when you don't have it? And that's that's when you really figure it out. Yeah, for those of us in recovery, that's what's that's really at the end of the day what's important. Doesn't matter how hard you get hit, it's what you do. It's, it's how quickly you get back up and you get back in the ring. There's really no limit to, to how high you can go. There really isn't. I'm just constantly amazed at the things that I've been able to do with my kind of past, and that just goes to show you God will will kick doors open for you if you're doing the right thing. Well, if you allow yourself to find your path, to to find your destiny, what God has in store for you, if you actively seek it, if you spend like you do on a daily basis asking God to guide you in that quiet time and prayer and meditation, these doors open and these opportunities that are all around us all the time, we can actually see them now. And that's what happens, you know. Who you're supposed to be starts to unfold naturally. Absolutely right. So, Josh, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? You know, I think I'm still waking up spiritually. Uh, and I don't know how to really explain that. I have moments where I just... You know, I feel like I'm, I'm on the beam or I'm on the, you know, the path. I'll, I'll see a sunset like that moment I was telling you about in, in Costa Rica. And, I, and I, I'm able to really see what's going on in my life with some clarity and some vision of, you know, the, the spiritual life is it's not a theory. <laughs> we got to live it. And when we do live it, it's there. And we it's just it's like Chuck C says, you know, it's just a new pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. And it's always there for me to see, but what's my perspective? So that's that's tough because I think that it, I go back and forth with it. Some days I'm really I'm really on the beam, and some days I'm not. But it's all a matter of, of 
my perspective. I, I think definitely if I could, you know, I guess step five was, was one of those big moments. Coming over to Ole Miss was another one. Being able to, to be at a university when, you know, people were telling me I was going to be dead by the time I was 21 years old or in prison. I mean, it's, it's really humbling to see all these things. I can't give you one specific moment, but I think, you know, where I'm continuously waking up even more every day. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And and it does, once you once you can connect with that, because a lot of times people don't even realize they're having spiritual awakenings. You know, they, they much later on, they identify those God shots. But it's amazing when you finally realize that that subtle little miracle that happened in your life is God providing you with a spiritual awakening. You know, you look at these things and you're like, wow, this is it. This is God showing me that I'm on the right path, that, I, that, I am, that I'm on the beam. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's just the, the, the biggest spiritual awakening is just the ability to be present in my own life and mm-hmm. then to be able to pay attention in the moment, to be able to pay attention to what I'm doing and see it where, you know, for so long I was, I was living in yesterday or I was too busy worrying about tomorrow. It's, I, you know, it's, it's really a blessing and a spiritual, you know, it says in how it works, may you find him now. It doesn't mm-hmm. say may you find him yesterday or may you find him tomorrow. But, you know, you got to find him right where you are. Yeah. That's kind of what it's like. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, Josh, tell me, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Man, I, I got several. Can I give you more than one? Sure. Absolutely. I, I mentioned Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that book. A, a New Pair of Glasses. Chuck C, baby. Yeah. I love that book. That was a great book. And another one was uh, M. Scott Peck wrote The Road Less Traveled. Yeah. And I, I really like that one, too. Those are all three amazing books and so instrumental for so many people in early recovery because it's they're easy reads and they're easy to connect with. Yeah, and I needed that. I, I, uh, I think AA is really just life for dummies sometimes. <laughs> I, I, needed it, I needed it dumbed down a little bit. <laughs> I hear you, brother. I hear you. All right. So, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? My uh, my sponsor made a comment to me one time. I told you my father was killed when when I was a young man, or when I was a baby, actually. And yeah. For a long time, I was looking for a father figure, and I was looking for somebody to show up and rescue me or take care of me. And, and I was talking to Tim about this, and I said, you know, I, I said I, I just I've always just wanted a guy to, to show up and, and be that father figure. He goes, Josh, when are you going to stop looking for that guy and start being that guy? Ooh. And, and, and that, that really, I think, was a pivotal moment in not just my recovery, but my entire life. And he was right. You know, when I, and when I started to do that, my life changed. My, my whole – everything started to, to kind of shift. And I realized I don't have to wait on anybody else anymore. I can go do that now. I can go be what I've been looking for my entire life. I don't have to wait on somebody else to show up and do it for me. Man, that was another beautiful God shot right there. The miracle of sponsorship. You know what I mean? Like They sometimes Uh, hit you so square between the eyes, and it just shakes your tree, man. And you're never the same again. You know, you're never the same again, and you're like, I got this. I got this. That's beautiful, man. That is beautiful. I love it. 
All right, so finally, number five, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would that be? Surrender, I think, is, is the, you know, that's the answer to, to most of my problems today is, is the ability to surrender uh, and, and whatever I'm, I'm doing. And it's, it's kind of like that, that spiritual jujitsu. If, if I'm willing to surrender, I can, I can overcome just about anything. But my pain usually comes from my resistance to the process. And the more I try and resist, the, the more pain and discomfort I usually get in and the more mental anguish and turmoil. But, but my ability to surrender to, to what's going on around me and where I'm at and what's going on, that's, that's the biggest peace of mind I can get today is just this, this ability to, to surrender. Surrender to win, they say. That's it. Absolutely. Surrender to win. Amazing suggestions. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Well, oh, man, I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate being with you. Maybe maybe next time we can go do it at that restaurant there in, uh, in Manuel Antonio. I'm in, buddy. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Por my. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> you did spend some time here. <laughs> I did. I'm, in, I'm telling you, I'm in love with that place. Picked up the slangs and everything. That's awesome. it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida, my. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.